Well, I'm excited this morning as we are starting a, a new sermon series in the book of Judges. It's a series titled Peril and Promise. A couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to teach over in Maui for Youth with a Mission, a tremendous mission organization, and, and this is a, a, an area that I've teach, uh, taught at many times over the years. But the last trip I took there to Maui was interesting because uh, we had a, an interesting episode on our flight. My family and I, we had flown from Minneapolis to Los Angeles to LAX where we had a, a short layover. And a short layover in LAX is always a good thing. It's, uh, it's one of the least desirable airports to spend time in. But uh, we had a short layover in LAX and we were all excited to get on our plane and, and start the five-hour journey across the Pacific Ocean to Maui. And uh, our plane left uh, right around 5 o'clock in the evening, and we took off, and it was just, it was beautiful, because the sun was setting over the Pacific, and, you know, we take off when we're flying over the beaches of L.A., and we start heading off, out across the Pacific Ocean uh, and into the darkness, knowing that we're on our way to Maui. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, right? Well, well, the plane flight started off terrific. I mean, just a smooth flight. We're about an hour and a half over the Pacific Ocean, and... And, uh, you know, everybody's reading their books, drinking their beverages, watching their movies. And all of a sudden, as I was watching the movie on the seatback in front of me, I started noticing flight attendants hurriedly walking up and down the aisles. In fact, they, they had the beverage cart just up ahead of where I was seated. And, and one of the flight attendants came rushing up to the beverage cart. And I saw her whisper something. And, and all of a sudden, the other flight attendant hurriedly put the beverage cart away. And then the two of them went to the back of the plane. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a little bit unusual. And, uh, but, you know, I wasn't too worried about it, so I just kept watching my movie. Well, about two minutes after that, I see these two flight attendants come rushing up the aisle, and they go to the front of the plane, and they come back with a third flight attendant. And uh, the three of them are back there, and I think, okay, something's got to be going on. But, you know, I, you know, again, no big deal. We're, we're flying to Hawaii. This is all good. And, and I'm just sitting there watching my movie. Well, all of a sudden, about two minutes go by, and the captain of the airplane comes hurriedly walking down the aisle of the airplane. And now I'm thinking to myself, okay, something, something is not right here. Well, we discover a couple minutes later, the pilot gets on the intercom of the airplane, and he says to us, uh, hey, folks, I'm really sorry, um, but we've got a door, a door in the back of the airplane that isn't latched correctly, and we need to head back to LAX. Now, you know, when you're an hour and a half over the Pacific Ocean, 45,000 feet above, you know, the, the waters of the Pacific, the, the last thing you want to hear is that you've got a door, a cabin door that's not latched correctly, right? Now, we're already majorly bummed out because we're realizing, okay, now we've got to fly back. We've already flown an hour and a half. We've got to fly an hour and a half back to L.A. on a broken airplane with a door that's not latching correctly. And then we're going to land in L.A. And how, you know, who knows how long we're going to be stuck there. Well, we eventually made our way back to L.A. And that turned into a huge, miserable ordeal. I mean, we were literally stuck there for about five, six hours waiting for them to first fix the plane. They couldn't fix the plane. They had to find another plane for us. The airport was shut down at this time of night. We're in a terminal that's under construction. There's nothing open. There's nowhere to sit. There's 300 passengers that are all upset. I mean, it was literally one of the most miserable travel experiences I had ever had in my life before they finally got us up and going again. 
Now, I was thinking about that experience this week as I was studying the opening chapter for our new series in the book of Judges. Because in the opening chapter of the book of Judges, we see a nation, the nation of Israel, that's full of great promise. I mean, the nation of Israel here at this point in their life, they, they've just come out of the exodus from Egypt. They've, they've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Moses has led them out. They, they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses passes away. Joshua leads them into the promised land, the land that God had promised them, the land of Canaan, which became the, the land of Israel. They, they had begun to conquer the land. Everything is looking like, man, this is smooth sailing ahead for the nation of Israel. You know, I mean, they're, they're on their way. Everything looks good. But as you begin to read the book of Judges, you begin to see signs of distress. Signs that not everything is right with God's people. That, that maybe there is something perilous going on in the background. And so we see this nation full of great promise, but sadly, they're a nation that quickly experiences these signs of distress and ultimately find themselves grounded in a place of misery. This is the story of God's people in the book of Judges. Judges takes place between 1375 B.C. and 1050 B.C. So we're, we're looking at a period in Scripture, a 325-year period. Roughly a quarter of the Old Testament story of the nation of Israel takes place in the book of Judges over this 325-year period. And again, it's that period of history in the nation of Israel between the the leadership of Joshua when the people of Israel first entered the promised land and in what is known as the conquest. God had led them into the promised land to take over the land of Israel, which God had promised a, a thousand years earlier to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Joshua's now led them into the promised land. Joshua's passed away, but he's given the people instructions to continue to occupy the land and and take it as God had ordered them to do. To, To drive out the pagan people and all of the pagan influences of that land. I mean, we're talking about nations, wicked and evil nations that practiced religious prostitution and child sacrifice. And and God had said, look it, I want you to drive these evil nations out of the land. This is the land that I have promised you, and I want you to establish yourself in the land to to be a lighthouse, an outpost to the world, representing me and my righteousness to the rest of the world. That was God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. And, And so we see Israel setting out on this course, but yet... Over the next 325 years, we're going to begin to see Israel in this ongoing, persistent, downward spiral into sin and rebellion and chaos and depravity. The the book of Judges, friends, I, I hate to tell you this, it's not a fun book. And it's not a pretty book. It's a book that literally goes from bad to worse. It's a book that starts out as a a PG movie, and literally by the end, we're looking at NC-17 material. Many scholars refer to this period of the nation of Israel as the Dark Ages of Israel. It, It was a period of great peril, but also a period where we see God's incredible promise. 
And it's an interesting book for us to study because God holds those two choices out in front of each of us as well. The choice to follow Him, to live by His will and His ways, the the choice that leads to great promise, or to choose to do life our own way. To to rebel against God, to to go the way that we think is best. And, And like Israel, to descend into a place of peril. A place of misery. This is, this is the choice that's presented to us in the book of Judges. So I want to read for us this morning the, the first chapter of the book of Judges. I, I want us to start out in this first chapter. And Judges is, in, is interesting because the book of Judges begins with a two-part introduction. Chapter 1, which we're going to study this morning, is the overview of this period from Israel's perspective. So so we're reading about what took place over this 325-year period from the perspective of the nation of Israel. Next week, when we get to chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the overview of this period from God's perspective. So so two complementary opening chapters, but there's a lot for us to learn as we look at the overview of what took place during this period, the the dark ages of the nation of Israel. How, How did Israel get into this spiraling descent into sin and depravity. We're going to look at this descent of Israel here this morning. And the descent of Israel that we see in the book of Judges begins at a high point. It begins on the mountaintop of faith. As I said, the, the, the story of Judges begins with everything looking as if it's going to be smooth sailing for the nation of Israel. In fact, let's take a look at the first two verses of chapter 1. Israel on the mountaintop of faith. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now remember, friends, the nation of Israel at this time was comprised of the 12 tribes of Israel. Based on the 12 sons of, of, of Jacob, right? You had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the 12 tribes of Israel have now come into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua's passed away, but they have been given this mission to now go in and settle the land. There are still Canaanites, pagan pagan people living there that God had ordered them to drive out. Okay? Kill these enemies of God. These are wicked, evil people. God had given these people 400 years to repent. They chose not to repent. And so God is using the Israelites as his instrument of judgment against these wicked Canaanite people. And so the 12 tribes of Israel come to God here at the beginning of the book of Judges and they say, okay, who shall go first into the land to fight against these wicked people? And God selects Judah, the tribe of Judah, to go first up against the Canaanites. So out of the 12 tribes, Judah is called to go first. Now, here's the thing, friends. If, if we only had these first two verses of the book of Judges, if this is all we knew, like you would think, wow, this, this looks pretty good. I mean, this looks like the picture of a model nation walking in faith with the Lord. Right? I mean, what do we see in these first two verses? We see Israel trusting the Lord. We see Israel seeking His will for their future. We, we see Israel remaining faithful to their mission. Right? Like, like everything looks like it's going to be smooth sailing. They're, they're doing exactly what God's people should be doing. Trusting Him, seeking His will, staying faithful to the mission that He's called them to. 
But sadly, friends, this is literally the high point for the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. As we're going to see, it's not going to take long for signs of distress to appear. In fact, from this point forward, we're going to witness the rapid descent of Israel into this 300-year period of increasing chaos and spiritual depravity. As the old saying goes, it's all downhill from here. Now, now you might be thinking to yourself this morning, well, Pastor Jason, I mean, look, if this is as good as it gets in the book of Judges, I mean, if this is, a, if this is the high point, like, why even bother studying this? Right? Like, I mean, what, 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 what is the redemptive character of this book? Well, friends, I'll tell you why we're going to study this. We're going to study the book of Judges because we can learn a lot from Israel's errors, from their mistakes, from their rebellion against God. This past week, one of the legends of the NFL passed away, John Madden. I love John Madden. I can't tell you how many football games I watched with my grandpa and my uncle and my brother, you know, watching John Madden. He was always so fun and entertaining. And if you remember John Madden, John Madden was famous for pioneering the use of the telestrator in the football commentary, right? And I got a picture here for you of, you know, John Madden's typical telestrator diagramming, right? I mean, like, he'd start drawing all over the screen, and there'd be squiggly lines going this, you know, this guy's going this way, and this guy's going this way, and this guy comes in under here, and the defense is running around here. And pretty soon, I mean, the screen is just covered with lines. It just looks like a complete mess and chaos, but friends, if you remember, John Madden, no, no matter how messy the telestrator got, Madden always got around to making his point, didn't he? And he always had fascinating and insightful commentary to share. And you know something? In the same way, we're going to see in the book of Judges. We're going to see a book that's filled with chaos. A book that's filled with messiness. But, but as we begin to discern the errors of Israel's ways, by God's grace, we're also going to learn some important lessons. Lessons about how we can guard our own lives. Uh, about how we can experience the fullness of all that God promises us when we walk faithfully with Him. And these lessons begin right away here in chapter 1. Israel's begun at the mountaintop of faith. But secondly, as we continue on in chapter 1, we see Israel quickly beginning to descend the slippery slope of compromise. As we go on in chapter 1, verses 3 through 36, we read the following. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, we will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, to, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled. This, this is a warlord over that region in the nation of Israel. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. 
And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have sent me into the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go... And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is the name of it to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kidon or the inhabitants of Nahol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subjects of forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Oxib, or of Hebla, or of Aphek, or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris and in Ajalon and in Shablim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of 
Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now, friends, when we read chapter 1 here, the, 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 the bulk of chapter 1 here can be initially confusing the first time you read it. Not only for all the crazy names in, in the book of chapter, in the chapter 1, but it, it's confusing when you read it for the first time because you're not quite sure if you should be cheering on Israel as they have these victories or be dumbfounded by their foolishness in the midst of all of these victories. See, here, here in verses 3 through 36, we're, we're presented with these great feats of victory by God's people as they begin to take the promised land, but we also see how Israel's poor choices begin piece by piece to chip away at their spiritual foundation. In the beginning here of chapter 1, we witness small and seemingly insignificant acts of compromise. And by the end of chapter 1, Israel has spiraled downward into a pattern of outright rebellion and accommodation. I want to point out for us this morning how how this descent took place. How how this slippery slope of compromise played out here in chapter 1. It begins right away in verse 3. We see that the people of Judah don't trust God's promise. In verses 1 and 2, God selected Judah to be the first tribe to go up against the Canaanites. God says, Judah, you go. I've already delivered them into your hand. But what does Judah do right away in verse 3? Judah goes to his brother Simeon and says, Simeon, would you come and help us fight against the Canaanites? God had told Judah, I've already delivered them into your hand. There's nothing to worry about. But Judah doesn't trust God's promise. And so he goes to his brother's tribe, Simeon, the people of Simeon, and says, hey, will you come help us fight against these people? A small, seemingly insignificant act of compromise, but an act of compromise nonetheless. It goes on then in verses 6 through 7. We find the people of Israel not following God's plan. They, they capture this warlord, Adonai Bezek. And what do they do to Adonai Bezek? Remember, God had said, look it, you got two choices here when you conquer the promised land. You either kill these wicked Canaanites or you drive them out of the land. But what do the Israelites do? They don't follow God's plan. They capture Adonai Bezek and they cut off his thumbs and they cut off his big toes and they take him to Jerusalem and parade him as a, vict- as a captor. A, capture, a captured conquered uh, warlord. They, they treat him the same way that the pagan Canaanites would have treated somebody that they had won a victory over. They, they don't follow God's plan. They disobey God. God said, look, either drive them out or put them to death. Don't take them to Jerusalem and show them off as your conquered prize. Verse 19 then comes along, and we see that they don't believe in God's power. The people of Judah are winning all these victories, but then they go down to the plains of Israel along the Mediterranean where the Philistines lived. And they didn't conquer the people of the plains. Why? Because the people of plains, the plains had iron chariots. And they, they, they couldn't fight against the people because they had iron chariots. Oh, you mean like the iron chariots that literally just 40 years ago... Pharaoh had followed you into the wilderness with the iron chariots that are now at the bottom of the Red Sea because of God's power, right? But now the Israelites see these iron chariots in the plains and they say, oh no, we can't go against them. They, they got 
powerful weapons. And so they fail to believe in God's power. Compromise after compromise after compromise. And it continues in verse 24. The Israelites make a covenant with a Canaanite man. They go up against the city of Bethel, known as Luz at this time. And they find a Canaanite man, and they make a covenant with this Canaanite man. They say, look, if you help us to get into the city, show us a secret way into the city, we'll let you and your family live. And so the Canaanite man shows the Israelites how to get in the city. They conquer Luz, and then they let the Canaanite go. And what does he do? The Canaanite goes, and he just starts a new city called Luz. They just traded one loves for another. Compromise. We, we see the compromise continue in verse 27. We, we discover that the Canaanites persist in living in the promised land. That's literally the word God uses. They, they persist in living in the land. They were more persistent than God's people. And the compromise continues on. Verse 29, we find the, the Israelites tolerating the Canaanites living among them. Not, to, not only did they not drive them out of the land, but they literally allowed them to live among them in their midst. And, and the compromise continues in verse 33. Now Israel has gone from tolerating the Canaanites to literally assimilating with the Canaanites. Did you notice that in verse 29? It says the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. But by the time you get to verse 33, it's the Israelites living among the Canaanites. They've gone from tolerating to assimilating, becoming just like the people that they were supposed to drive out. And then we see the final act of chapter 1 in verse 34 where the people of Dan are literally running in retreat from the Canaanites. The people of Dan are forced back into the hills because the Canaanites literally pushed them out. And so chapter 1 is like, it's this interesting chapter where you see the fulfillment of God's promise as Israel moves into the promised land and begins to take the promised land. And again, you feel like, man, this, Israel's winning here. But they weren't winning. In the midst of these victories, there was compromise after compromise after compromise until you get to the end of the book and they're still living in the midst of these evil pagan people literally on the run from them. What a sad and tragic picture. And friends, remember here, Israel's literally just one generation removed from witnessing some of the, the greatest miracles in all of history. These are people who knew God's power, who had lived through His promises, who had seen His incredible miracles on their behalf. And yet, They've doubted God. They failed to trust God. They failed to rely on God. They, they've gone from the, the mountaintop of faith and they begin to slide down the slippery slope of compromise. And friends, notice it all started with a small, seemingly insignificant act of disobedience. One choice of compromise against God's will. One act of rebellion against God's plan ultimately leading to a pattern of doubting God's faithfulness, doubting His promises, doubting His power. How sad. And yet, friends, make no mistake, this is how compromise always works. It starts with one 
small, seemingly insignificant choice. It reminds me of my attempt this past week to start my New Year's diet following Christmas. I mean, like, how ridiculous is that, right? Like, you try to start your diet right away at the New Year when your house is full of leftovers from Christmas, right? My wife made this amazing hot fudge for Christmas. And and I was strong, man. Christmas Day, I didn't have any hot fudge. I, I was strong. I knew it was there in the refrigerator just waiting to be enjoyed. And I love this hot fudge, but, but I was strong, right? I'm thinking, okay, I've had my share of Christmas cookies. I'm good. I'm going to resist the hot fudge. But this week, I open the refrigerator on Monday, and I see this jar of hot fudge in there. And I think, oh, the hot fudge, it looks so good. But I shut that door. I was strong. Later that night, though, I'm watching TV and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to go see what's up to eat in the fridge. And I, I saw the jar of hot fudge again and I said, you know what, I, I, I'm just going to take a little taste. Just, just a little taste, you know, just a little spoonful. Oh, and it was so good. <laughs> that little taste turned into a big spoonful scooping up into my bowl of ice cream. And every day since, I've been finishing off that jar of hot fudge. <laughs> The fudge in the fridge turned into the fat on the frame, if you know what I'm saying. And friends, the same principle holds true spiritually. It's small acts of rebellion. It's little choices against God's will. And these quickly turn into patterns. And patterns turn into persistence. Persisting in our sins. That's how compromise works. Every single time. Friends, if you want a lesson to go home with today, here's the lesson. Obedience matters. Faithfulness to God's will matters. Trusting God and His plans for our lives matters. And we're going to see this lesson play out over and over again throughout the book of Judges. The, the, the story of peril and promise, the, the story of God allowing the nation of Israel the, to choose to, to go their way or to go His way. And sadly, as we're going to see, so often Israel made the wrong choice. Let, let, let's turn to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I want to point out where Israel's slide into compromise ultimately led them. Here at the outset of chapter 2, we find Israel in the valley of Bochum. Israel's in the valley of Bochum. Now, now I'm speaking metaphorically here because Bochum was actually up in the hills. But as we're going to see, Israel wasn't in the heights. Israel was really in the depths. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. And so the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel. And the people of Israel lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Here we find the nation of Israel at the outset of chapter 2 in the valley of Bochum. The, the word Bochum, friends, means weepers. 
They're in the valley of weeping, the valley of tears. This is where Israel's compromise led them to the place of despair. And friends, isn't that where compromise always takes us? Compromise always takes us to the valley of tears. When we choose to go our way, when we choose to ignore God's will, when we choose to be faithless, when we choose to rebel against His plans and purposes, we always end up in the valley of tears in Bochum. I, I was thinking just this week of the, the, the literally hundreds of counseling situations I've had in my ministry as a pastor over 20-some years. And, and, and as I was thinking back on all of these experiences of counseling people and helping people through periods of intense trial and hardship in their life, wh- whether we're talking about you know addiction with substance abuse or addiction to pornography or marital strife, right? Like every single example I could think of started with acts of compromise. Often small, seemingly insignificant choices that ultimately lead us to the valley of Bochum, the valley of tears, the place of weeping. But friends, I don't want us to miss the most important message in our passage here at the outset of chapter 2 because look who meets the Israelites in the valley of weeping. The angel of the Lord. And it was in Bochum where the people of Israel would be reminded of God's amazing grace. Chapter 2 starts out, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now there's two important points I want to highlight on this, on this statement. Number one, who is the angel of the Lord? Friends, you need to understand, this is, this is awesome. This is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. When we read about the angel of the Lord here at the start of Judges chapter 2, this is Jesus appearing to his people. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a number of pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God. He's often referred to as the angel of the Lord because, again, the the people didn't understand the the full triune nature of who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, But the angel of the Lord shows up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. And we know that this wasn't just a typical angelic messenger because look at how he refers it to himself here. He says, I brought you out from Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I will never break my covenant with you. Again, this is over and over again. It's I did this. I promise this. I will do this. This wasn't an angelic messenger. This was God himself speaking to his people, reminding them of his faithfulness to them and his promises to them. This is incredible to understand this passage in this light, that that here we have the Son of God speaking to the Israelites. And, And the second point that's important to recognize is the route that the angel of the Lord takes to meet the people of Israel. He comes up from Gilgal to Bochum. Now what's so important about Gilgal as a starting place? Well, friends, if you go back to Joshua chapter 4 and 5, it was in Gilgal where the people first crossed into the promised land. And in Joshua 4 and 5, Joshua had the people of Israel take stones out of the Jordan River and in Gilgal build a monument, a memorial to God's faithfulness. And then in Joshua chapter 5, God declares to Israel at Gilgal that he was going to forgive all of their sins from their time in Egypt. 
Joshua 5, 9, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. The reproach of Egypt was all the sin, all the experiences that they had had in Egypt and in their wanderings in the wilderness. I've rolled away your sins from you, the Lord says. And so to this day, that place is called Gilgal. And now the angel of the Lord comes to Israel as they're in the valley of weeping, the place of Bochum, and he comes up from Gilgal, the place where he had forgiven them of their sins, the place where he had proclaimed his faithfulness to them. And he comes up from Gilgal to remind the people of Israel once again that he is a faithful God, that he's a God of amazing grace. Friends, isn't that awesome? Here's Israel in the valley of weeping, and God comes to him and reminds them that he is a faithful God. Israel's compromise had brought them to the valley of tears, but even there the good shepherd hadn't forsaken them. And I'll tell you something this morning, friends. Even when you find yourself in the valley of tears, in the valley of weeping, reaping the fruit of your own disobedience, you too can find the Good Shepherd there. In fact, God's most often found in the valley of weeping, in the place where we recognize the consequence of our sin and our rebellion. And God shows up and reminds us that He's a faithful God, a God of amazing grace. But friends, there's another important lesson we shouldn't miss here at the outset of chapter 2. You see, while God's a God of amazing grace, He's also a just God. He's a God who desires to be Lord over every area of our lives. He's not content with partial obedience. And He's a God who demands holiness and and retribution, payment for our sin. And so we find here this tension. There's this tension here in the Lord's words to Israel, and it's this tension that we're going to find all throughout the book of Judges. This tension between the Lord reminding His people that He's a faithful God, a God of amazing grace, a God who says in verse 1, I will never break my covenant with you. I'm going to keep my promise in spite of your rebellion. You're going to see my faithfulness. That's God's amazing grace. But He also makes clear that they have broken their covenant with Him. And he says, as a result of this, there's going to be consequences for your rebellion. Verses 2 and 3, he says, what are the consequences? I'm not going to drive the Canaanites from, from the land. They're going to remain among you. And they're going to be here from this day forward as a thorn in your side. Gary Enrig, who wrote a great book called Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay, a book about... Judges, he says this about this passage. He says, one of the most powerful ideas that has ever entered into my mind is that the Lord will not allow His people to sin successfully. He loves us too much to allow us to indulge in compromise and sin without consequences. His love at times may be tough. Tough love. But it is love. We see that reality here at the outset of chapter 2. The Lord makes clear to Israel there's going to be consequences for their compromise. The Canaanites won't be driven out of the land. They're going to remain there as a thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. And we're going to see this play out 
throughout the history of Israel because they allowed the Canaanites to remain in the land. They didn't do what God told them to do. And they didn't drive out these wicked and evil people. We're going to see throughout the book of Judges and throughout the rest of the Old Testament this onward cycle of Israel falling into rebellion, following the ways of the evil Canaanites falling into paganism, rebelling against God, worshiping false idols, falling into a place of despair and weeping, realizing where they've gone and what they've done, God forgiving them, restoring them, and then the cycle repeating over and over and over again. All because God said, I'm not going to drive out the Canaanites. Like that first patch of crabgrass in your yard in the early spring. If you don't pull that crabgrass out by the weeds, friends, it's not going to take long, just a week or two, and you're going to have crabgrass throughout your entire yard. God says it's going to be the same way for the people of Israel from this day forward. And when the people of Israel here in chapter 2 realize what they've lost because of their unfaithfulness, verse 4 tells us that they wept. Again, in the Valley of Bochum, the Valley of Tears, the the place where we realize the consequence of our sin. But it's the same place where we discover the presence of God in His amazing grace. And again, friends, this this is the tension that we're going to see throughout the book of Judges. Peril and promise. The peril that's found when we rebel against God. The promise that exists in His faithfulness and amazing grace. It's all throughout the story of Judges. It's this cycle of God's people repeatedly falling into disobedience and despair and deliverance from God. It's the cycle that we so often are prone to fall into ourselves. And we're going to see this over and over again. But at the same time, this book is also a book that's full of great promise. Because while it conveys the tragic story of Israel's rebellion against God, it also reminds us of God's amazing grace and His undeserved faithfulness to a rebellious people. People just like you and I, friends. Amazing grace that ultimately finds its culmination in the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Again, Christmas points us to the cross. It's only at the cross that this tension that we find in Judges is ultimately resolved. It's only in the cross, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, the one who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, what has Jesus done for us on the cross? In Jesus, God's justice is satisfied. In Jesus, we experience God's amazing grace. In Jesus, we find the motivation and power to break the cycle of sin and compromise. It's why God ultimately sent His Son to resolve the tension that's found throughout the book of Judges. And friends, there's only one way to get off that cycle of rebellion and despair and return and over and over again. It's, it's to go to the cross. It's to trust in Jesus for your forgiveness. It's to allow Him to pay our penalty. It's to allow Him to satisfy God's righteous judgment. It's, allowed to, it's to allow Him to give you His amazing grace and to rely on His power. 
and to look to His promise as the means of fighting the victory, winning the victory against sin in our lives. We're going to see a lot of incredible stories in the coming weeks as we study the book of Judges. Stories full of incredible promises. Stories that show us the dangerous peril of choosing against God. But again, friends, ultimately Judges is pointing us to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, He is our only hope. He is our only deliverer. Let me close one word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much for the opportunity to be gathered together this morning and especially to begin this new series in the book of Judges where we come to see so clearly the reality of where sin and rebellion leads. But we also find there the reality of Your grace and faithfulness to us. Jesus, we just thank You so much. We thank You that You came 2,000 years ago into this world to, to provide a way for us to escape this seemingly endless cycle of rebellion and sin and despair and repentance and over and over and over again. Jesus, as we look to You and Your righteousness and Your sacrifice and the, the grace that's found in You and the hope and power that comes as we rely on the cross, Lord, to fight our victories, Lord, we, we need You, Jesus. I pray that You'll remind us of that reality over and over again throughout our study in the book of Judges. And that as we look at these options of peril and promise, that they might drive us back to the cross time and time again as our only source of hope. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning from the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.